Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. So we have talked a lot on this podcast about poor investor behavior. We've touched a bit on chasing returns and how despite our own best intentions and seemingly knowing better, investors often buy high and sell low. But first, we have to talk about a stretch project that Shani did at work. And Shani was responsible for organizing a team photo. (laughs) And, you know, I call this I call this a stretch project, obviously, jokingly, because this is well below Shani's capabilities. But it turned out to be quite challenging. It was. It was like herding cats. So it was 15 of us. Yeah. (laughs) And and let's just say a lot of our team. So Shani outlined what people had to wear in this team photo. And we were taking this team photo so that we could put it onto our new website that's Mm -hmm. coming out soon. And. Shani told everyone what to wear. You just said business casual. Well, I said casual. business casual and I gave them some colors because we wanted everyone to be kind of coordinated. So just neutrals. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like we were all wearing red or something. No, no. <laughs> but then the questions started coming. So business casual seemed beyond a lot of people on the team's capabilities. I think some to- context here is that we have a very mixed team. So we've got a product team, marketing, we've got a development team, so software developers. Um, and I would say that a lot of the questions did come from one particular team. <laughs> yes, yeah, so those would be the developers. So <laughs> yes. Shani, uh, Shani outlined, um, well, you, you gave a lot of specifics. Well, I started getting an individual questions and I was like, all right, I just need to address this. And because in the first year, I didn't want to be condescending, you know, or patronizing. I didn't want to send a Google search of what business casual was to people. So But then ultimately you did that. <laughs> well, I went one step further. I did um I created two Pinterest boards, one for women and one for men. And it had this is what business casual is and the colors. But then the problem was you told me that people scrolled too far down and they were and looking at And it was at- like auto generated. So it was like hoodies and jeans and you know. Yeah. Well, we did it though. We did. Everyone looked great. It was great. Yeah. No, we pulled it off and the photographer was very detailed, like moving around women's hair and <laughs> flipping around, you know, necklaces and stuff like that. So yeah, good. we'll see yeah. how it turns out. Yeah, exactly. You looked at a couple of them on the camera, though. You yeah, said they, they looked great. okay. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's so get back let's to this. get to this episode. <laughs> yeah. So we are going to talk about some of the challenges that investors face just through our human qualities and we'll provide some practical tips to prevent this behavior. But Mark, of course, insists that we start with some background. So buckle up for some history. Okay. I'll ignore that. I think people think that this stuff is interesting. <laughs> I actually find it quite interesting too, Mark. Thank you. So Ben Graham, who we talk about a lot on here, spends a good part of his writing talking about investor behavior. And he talks about avoiding the crowd and that as investors, our own worst enemy is ourselves. And he has a quote that I don't think is aged very well, Shani, but he says, the time to buy a straw hat is in the winter. And the point of all this is that Ben Graham recognized that it is difficult to avoid doing what everyone else does. But then the 1960s came along the decade that killed off hats, but also apparently killed off this antiquated notion that humans were irrational. And what Mark is talking about here is the emergence of the efficient market hypothesis. And a lot of these ideas were around prior to the 1960s, but that's when there was a spike in popularity. 
A lot of this popularity was driven by the PhD thesis of Eugene Farmer, who went on to become a famous Nobel Prize winning economist at the University of Chicago. And at a high level, the efficient market, market hypothesis states that share prices reflect all known information and therefore are always priced at their fair value. Now, a couple conditions have to be met for this to happen. The first thing is that information is instantly available to everyone at no cost. And this is needed because for share prices to always reflect all available information, everyone in the market must have that information. The second major condition is that everyone must respond rationally to that information. So in other words, they must know how each new piece of information impacts the value of a share. And we want to raise awareness on this podcast about different approaches to investing. But we also want this to be about our opinion and Morningstar's opinion. So I will generously say that we believe that for stretches of time, the market may have been efficient and that some parts of the market that have more investor interest are more efficient. Big companies in the US, for instance. But we will also say that we 100% do not believe that markets are efficient. And that is because people aren't rational. We are driven by emotions and our emotions cause us to do things that don't align with simply getting the best investment returns possible. And we've talked about this before. If I'm a portfolio manager that makes millions of dollars a year, that has multiple houses and people that depend on me, I might think about my career and not just about what will give my investors the best long-term return. I may think about my next bonus and what will get me another year's salary. So I'll do things that benefit me in the short term, owning things that other people own so I'm not an outlier and chasing short-term returns. And no matter what professionals say about being long-term investors, the data shows that the vast majority of them are not. And I know for a fact that I'm not rational. So every time I think that I am, I go back and I think about the GFC. And I lived in Boston. I remember very clearly I had about a 20-minute walk home. And I just remember all the thoughts that went through my head. And yeah, I was scared. So I heard stories about the financial system crashing. And at the time, I was a consultant that was working with financial services uh, companies. And the guy below me got laid off. And then the guy above me got laid off. And when I was thinking about the stock market and it was plummeting, I was having a really hard time staying rational. So the efficient market hypothesis was perhaps a product of its time. Yeah, because I think if you look back at the 60s, right? All we hear about is hippies, right? Hippies at Woodstock and blah, blah, blah. But I think we also need to remember that the 60s were also an age of big advances in science and technology. And in many ways, the whole counterculture was a revolt against the prevailing culture, which was still about conformity and rationality. But things have changed. And once again, it is hard to equate this to one person because any intellectual movement builds over time. But we're going to talk a little bit about Daniel Kahneman. He also won a Nobel Prize in economics. The interesting thing about his Nobel Prize is that despite it being in economics, he never even took an economics course. He's a professor of psychology and public affairs at Princeton University, and he's a father of a field called behavioral economics. And behavioral economics is basically just saying that human decision making is often irrational despite the best intentions of investors. So in economics speak, it is not profit maximizing. And that is what we're going to talk about today, that decision-making is irrational, and that if we recognize that, we can come up with some techniques to help us not make bad decisions. So let's talk about fight or flight. Most people have heard of that being a core human attribute. When we are confronted with something stressful or frightening, we tend to react in one of two ways. We fight or we run. And this is hardwired into our DNA because of fight or flight. So Mark, are you more of a fight or a flight guy? 
I don't know. I, I think I think probably more of a flight guy <laughs> okay. at the end of the day. So I've run away from bugs, mm-hmm. commitment, like all, <laughs> all sorts of things. But, you know, this is what we call an action bias, which means that when investors are faced with falling or volatile markets, we feel deep in our DNA that we need to do something. And we feel compelled to act, but action when it comes to investing is often a bad thing. That means that when things are volatile and investments we own are falling, we want to do something. We want to sell what we own and buy something that has done better. And that is almost always a bad idea because even if we picked terrible investments, it's likely that our terrible investments have already fallen enough to make them not so terrible investments at their current price. And we have to acknowledge that the action bias is reinforced by both the media and by peer pressure. Something happens with the market, either it goes down a lot or up a lot, you start getting all sorts of articles about what you should do. And all of your friends and family start asking you, what are you doing? And to be frank, you sound like an idiot if you say that you are doing nothing. The thing you need to guard against is the fact that what you might be doing is just conventional wisdom and it's likely too late. Let's use a recent example. In the past year, the giant oil company ExxonMobil is up roughly 50%. And we're hearing a lot about how oil is a great investment from the same people that told us 50% ago that it's a terrible investment and that all cars are going to be electric and that nobody will own oil because of ESG considerations. And oil has been in the news a lot lately because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the volatility that we've seen has caused many investors angst and has caused many investors to do something. And this is natural. Headlines are screaming at you to do something, that 75 years of peace in Europe has been shattered. We hear about NATO summits and sanctions and nuclear forces being put on alert. Certainly does not seem like business as usual. And it isn't business as usual in a geopolitical sense, but that doesn't mean that you need to reactively do something with your portfolio. And that's something that many investors have done is to invest in oil. And maybe that's the right thing to do and maybe it isn't. Over the last month, ExxonMobil is up roughly 7.5%, which is really good, but pretty minor in the big scheme of things if we look at the last year. And perhaps oil is going to go through the roof, or perhaps this will cause more supply to come online. Or perhaps this will actually speed up the end of oil as people seek alternatives. The point is that we don't know the investment ramifications of this war. We are a month into it, and even though we reflexively want to do something, I think we need to acknowledge that if we are long-term investors, we really don't know what the impact is going to be. The interesting thing is that action bias impacts you more if you are overconfident or if you have experienced previously negative outcomes. We can infer with hindsight that if you did something, you would have had a better outcome. And I think this is really interesting, Shani, because what it's saying is that if you are more experienced or more experienced investors are more likely to do something stupid than new investors. And we often think the opposite is true. But I think in this case, it makes a lot of sense because I can sit there and look at the GFC and think if only I would have sold all my bank shares at the first time of trouble, I would have been a lot better off. And I can say this because the first headline saying something might be amiss turned out to be the tip of the iceberg. But I only know that because of hindsight. And more often than not, when some predicted terrible event is happening, it turns out to be nothing. But Shani, on the other hand, you were 14 when the GFC happened. So <laughs> I don't have you don't have that this, view. No. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so my favorite example of action bias is actually a sport example. We've all seen a penalty kick in soccer. It is pretty exciting. The goalie stands there all alone, and as the other player is approaching the ball, the goalie picks a direction and dives. 
And maybe the goalie has a strategy. He or she has studied video or sees something about how the player is approaching the ball that makes one direction seem more plausible. But let's call it for what it is. It is a guess. Well, the best approach is actually to do nothing, to stand where you are in the center of the goal and try to save the ball if it comes somewhat close to you. But nobody does that. Standing there seems ridiculous because as humans, we want to do something. We want to take action, even if that action lowers the chance of achieving our goal. And in this case, it was saving the ball. And this is the perfect example of action bias, because if the goalie picks the right direction and makes a save, everyone is, of course, thrilled. The press comes and interviews the goalie, which provides an opportunity to talk about how the goalie just knew that the player is going to shoot the ball in that direction. But that is hindsight. In reality, the goalie just got lucky, but that luck and the success that came from it is often attributed to skill. And we'll get into some practical tips in a bit, but the lesson is that doing nothing is almost always the right choice. And that is hard because like the goalie that just stands there in front of a stadium full of people demanding action in the face of the urgent matter of a penalty kick, you will face all sorts of people, the media, your peers, your family, demanding that you do something. Morningstar Investor is built for investors by investors. It provides independent research and data on over 40,000 securities, tools to build and maintain an investment portfolio, and investor education resources to support you, regardless of where you are in your investing journey. Explore opportunities with our monthly global best ideas. Explore our ETF model portfolios. Plan better with two years of dividend forecasts for ASX-listed stocks. And stay informed with independent thought leadership. We've built tools to help you construct, monitor, and maintain your portfolio, including our Portfolio Manager, integrated with one of Australia's leading portfolio tracking tools, ShareSight. Morningstar has been empowering investor success for over 35 years. We're passionate about your outcomes and are here every step of the way as you achieve them. Take out a free four-week trial to access our resources. Find the details in the episode notes. We're going to go through a couple more of the underlying biases that investors have. And we'll do this quickly because hopefully you will sense a bit of a theme because they're all related and they are all examples of investors being hardwired to make poor decisions and act irrationally. We believe that we can take the available information and data and make a rational choice. But we are faced with a confirmation bias, recency bias, and an overconfidence bias along with a longer list that we won't go through today. All of these inhibit our ability to think rationally and process information that we receive. That's exactly right. So a confirmation bias means that as humans, we have the tendency to seek out information that confirms what we already think and discount any information that goes against what we already think. And we all accept that it's hard to change other people's minds, but we are less likely to accept that it's also hard to change our own minds. And not only do we seek out this information that agrees with our current thinking, We also tend to give greater importance to recent events than historical events. That is, of course, recency bias. This is why we chase returns. This investment went up last year or last month or last week, so it will just keep going up forever. I should buy it. And this is a terrible investment. It went down last year or last month or last week, so I should sell it. And the cherry on top is overconfidence bias. That is the bias that we all overestimate our skills. And the example we always hear, and one of the best examples, is that we all seem to think we're above average drivers. So two-thirds of people think that they are above average drivers. And of course, we know that isn't true mathematically. But when this comes to investing, it means that we are overly confident when it comes to things like market timing. And you hear this all the time when investors say things like, I'll know when to get out and get back in. 
And, you know, I need to admit that this is kind of me, right? And my strategy of building up cash. So it's all premised on the fact that I will know when to get back into the market. And I can say that the market's overvalued because, you know, at the end of the day, that's a fact when we look at history. But that does not mean I will know when to get back in. And we could go on. There is a long list of these biases that impact investors. But the bottom line is that they all just state that we have a lot of trouble making rational decisions. And we especially have a lot of trouble making rational decisions in times of stress and in times when the market is undergoing a shift and is at an inflection point, which, if we're honest, might be now. We've seen a pretty significant rotation to value after 15 years or so of growth outperforming. Logically, there is a case to be made that we're at an inflection point, but there are a lot of investors out there that are just saying buy the dip and wait for Tesla to go up another 200%. And shockingly, as a research house, we have done research here at Morningstar <laughs> and into this, and you know others have as well, um, but we've done research into how much irrationality costs us as investors. So at Morningstar, we call this the behavior gap. The way we study this as Morningstar is that we look at a return achieved by a fund And then we look at the return received by an investor in that fund. And these are different. So the fund return is based on the underlying assets in the fund. The investor return is based on the inflows or outflows of actual investors deciding to buy into the fund or sell out of the fund. So those inflows and outflows have no direct impact on the performance of the fund, but the timing of your investments have a huge impact on the return that you get. And the gap is huge. We did this comprehensive study back in 2013, and we looked at 10-year returns and compared the average return of funds and the average returns of investors. We looked at global share funds in the survey and found that the average return over 10 years was 8.77%, which is pretty good. And then we looked at the average return that an investor got, and it was 5.76%, which is not as good. So that difference, which is almost 3% a year, is a gap that occurred because we make poor decisions as investors, and that is the behavioral gap. And the question, of course, is how do we prevent this? Well, Daniel Kahneman, who we referenced earlier, wrote a book on how humans think and make decisions called Thinking Fast and Slow, which outlines the biases we talked about and then a bunch of others. And the central message in the book is if we want to make better decisions in our personal lives and as a society... We ought to be aware of these biases and then seek workarounds. And the same holds true for investing. So let's start with some techniques that are applicable for investing. The first seems pretty simple, but it's to write things down. Have a plan that is written down and quantified. Something we've spoken about over and over again on this podcast. Set a goal, write down that goal, calculate what it's going to take to achieve that goal. And it doesn't matter if you change the goal later. When you do, just update what you've written down. This goal is your investment objective, and it'll serve as a guide to all the other decisions that you make. And keep writing stuff down. So once you've gotten your goal, write down how you're going to achieve the goal from an investment standpoint. Your goal will tell you how much you need to save and what return you need, but now you need your investment policy statement. And I will say that I've been arguing with a bunch of people at Morningstar about how important it is that we help investors do this in our products. So that's Morningstar Investor. And we are finally updating our investment policy statement features, part of the product. And we'll roll this out soon. And we're just going to put in a blank field, which I know some people think I'm a little bit crazy, but just a blank field that allows you to write down how you are choosing investments to achieve your goals. But this is something really critical to success. So go back and listen to our investment policy statement episode to hear how you can use that to help you achieve your goals. 
So once you've written down your goal and written down your investment strategy and how you will select investments, it's time to pick what goes into your portfolio. And guess what? We want you to write down all the reasons that you think this is a good investment and then write down all the reasons you could be wrong. And we can help you here with our bulls and bears section in our research reports. Writing down why you want to pick a particular share or ETF is healthy because it clarifies your thinking and makes sure that you have an actual reason for investing in it. Because you're probably not going to buy it if you just write it down because my Uber driver told me or because it went up last year. Is that where you get your investing? My Uber driver? Yeah. Yeah, I do. How's that working out for you? (laughs) Pretty good. I mean, everything's gone up, so. Yeah, I mean, I guess exactly, (laughs) exactly. Uh, So writing down all the reasons not to buy the investment is also good because it forces you to think about and research why this may not work. And trust me, for any investment that I've ever made or that you'll ever make, there are a lot of reasons why it may not work. And this overcomes overconfidence bias and confirmation bias because you have to think about why you could be wrong. So writing things down is a great first step, but we also need to keep working on slowing down any decision-making so we can fight our action bias. And writing things down does help. It helps because before you make any decision in your portfolio, you need to go back and read your goals and read your investment strategy. Then you read the original reason you bought a particular share or ETF that you want to sell, and then research and write down why you want to replace it with a new share or ETF. All of that takes time, but that isn't good enough. We would encourage you to then add a buffer to think things through, perhaps a couple of days or even a week, that even after you've gone through this process, give yourself time to consider it and then go back and see if what you've done and what you've written down still makes sense. And this is hard because we have all these influences that are telling us that we need to act immediately. And sort of chief among them is just the share market and the fact that prices are always changing. But realize that the differences in prices in a couple of days or weeks are going to pale in comparison with that 3% a year that investors are underperforming given this behavior gap. So if you find it hard to have the discipline, then maybe find a friend or a family member that can be your investing mate and pitch each other ideas before you make any transaction. And you know, I do get that there's a lot of stigma about talking about money, but this can be really effective even if they don't challenge your ideas. And remember this gap, that 3% gap is huge. And if you think about it, like if you start from zero, you invest $10,000 a year for 30 years and earn a 10% return, you'll get $1.65 million. You earn a 7% return, $950,000. And that is a staggering difference. Mm. So the other thing that, of course, facilitates these snap decisions is technology. The fact you can trade from your phone doesn't help this situation. We talked about this before in a previous episode, but technology has broken down barriers. You used to have to call your broker who would have to talk some sense into you if you're doing something stupid. You used to have to pay transaction costs, which might inhibit trading. A lot of that has gone away with technology and with cheap transactions. And I'm certainly not arguing that they didn't bring benefits to investors, but we also need to acknowledge that they facilitate poor investor behavior and add to behavioral challenges. And then the last tip we have is about mindset. So almost every study that's done shows that the default mindset of investors should be to do nothing. So get in the mindset that there needs to be a really convincing reason to make changes to your portfolio. And the most famous study is one one done by Fidelity, where they discovered that the best returns from people who traded with them came from investors who forgot they had accounts. So think about that (laughs) next time you're trying to make a trade. And we could go on and on with studies, but we want to make one more really important point. 
We talked earlier about the Mind the Gap study. The results that we quoted came from the US, but we also did a study in Australia and the results were very different. In Australia, investors actually outperformed the average fund return. It was only by a little bit, but that means that investors in Australia got the timing right. And investors in Australia aren't smarter than other investors, but there is a very big structural impediment to doing something stupid, and that is superannuation. It keeps people long-term focused because you can't touch the money unless you meet a very narrow set of requirements. Also, many investors have a default set of investments that money goes into each paycheck, and they just don't change it. Finally, we should make the point that all of the behavioral challenges that we've talked about in relation to investing are made worse during times of volatility, which we are facing now. The gap increases between investor returns and investment returns as the stress of volatility encourages all of us to act. So please keep that in mind as you invest. All right. We made it to the end of another one, Shani. Mm -hmm. We're on a roll. (laughs) So thank you guys very much for listening. We, once again, would love any comments or ratings in your podcast app. And we'd really appreciate any thoughts that you want to share with us, questions, show ideas that can go to my email address, which is in the show notes. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.